Cairo, Seattle. This is COVID-19 Seattle, a Cairo Radio special report. I'm Aaron Granillo. So where were you when the professional sports leagues stopped playing ball? For a lot of fans, that's when this pandemic really hit home, when the virus called a timeout for the entire sports world. And it felt like it happened instantly. There was that surreal scene in Oklahoma City back in March, seconds before tip-off at an NBA game. The league called it off after a player tested positive for COVID-19. Fans, due to unforeseen circumstances, the game tonight has been postponed. You are all safe. And take your time in leaving the arena tonight and do so in an orderly fashion. Thank you for coming out tonight. Moments later, the entire NBA called off the season. Then the rest of the big sports leagues began clearing their calendars. The NHL and Major League Soccer suspended their seasons. The newly formed XFL shuttered for good. And the Olympics were put off until 2021. 710 ESPN's Jessamine McIntyre remembers watching college basketball just stop literally mid-game. And they came out at halftime and were like, shut it down in the middle of a game. And then the conference tournaments kept going on and one by one they all just shut down. It's like being in a baseball stadium and the lights slowly shut out one by one. You know, you hear that click sound as they shut off around the field. That's what it felt like. Sports are how many Americans mark their lives. We drive our kids to practice, we gather around for the big game and argue about our favorite teams. And for many college seniors who play sports, their competitive careers have ended without any closure. It was just sad to see just like how quickly everything just got canceled. Michelle Newblom runs track and field at Seattle University. I mean, Seattle was the first reported case of coronavirus, but at the time, none of us had any idea how big this would turn into. We were having practices. We were getting ready for our first outdoor meet, which is at West Seattle Stadium. And then we heard that that meet was going to be canceled. And we were like, oh, shoot. But our coaches were just reassuring. They definitely did the best they could. Our coaches, the athletic department, they were like, okay, this meet got canceled, but we found one. I think it was in Oregon that we could go to. So we're like, we're still going to have a meet this weekend. We're just going to go down to Oregon. It was like, okay. And then um, obviously as things progressed, like more and more than that meet got canceled. And we were kind of looking at one, like maybe in Canada we could go to. And at this point, like, I think it was kind of starting to set in, like, this could be a really big deal. And then we got the email that spring classes were canceled and be held online and that was just kind of like like we knew that was kind of it like if spring classes were like canceled and everyone it said that like everyone staying on campus like had to go home or move out we were like well that means like sports like we're just done and then we got that notice like shortly thereafter I think that if my season had unfolded as it was supposed to I would have had that extra time to like come to terms with everything ending and then when um, I stepped onto the track for what I knew was going to be the last time. Like I would know in my mind that was the last time. And actually that time would have been this Saturday. This weekend would have been our conference meet in Texas. Michelle Newblom graduated this spring as a creative writing major, and she wrote a personal reflection on the sudden loss of her last track season for the Red Hawk Tribune. I'd been trying not to think about it. And I mean, it's not just like, athletics was over and nothing else happened. I just graduated school. I lost my job. Like both of my roommates moved out. 
um, for the time being, like just like so much happened that there was so much to think about, not just track. But then when I sat down to write that, it was like, okay, like I'm focusing solely on my track career coming to a close. And that was really hard to do. I mean, like track has been such an important part of my life and just like being an athlete has. And just to know that I may not get that opportunity experience again is really hard to come to terms with. So it was definitely like a good process for me to have that outlet and have the opportunity to write something that other people could read and like maybe it will help someone else. It definitely helped me. So it was definitely a good experience and I'm very glad I did it. But yeah, it was really hard to do just to have to process all those emotions when I've kind of been just like burrowing them until that moment. My heart does go out to every athlete that's had any form of competition canceled. Everyone has just been really affected by this and it's nice that we're not alone in this. Like we all do kind of have each other to lean on and we all can relate and emphasize with one another. Most sports courts and play fields have been off limits during Governor Jay Inslee's stay home orders. But just a couple weeks ago, the state did open back up golf courses with some limitations. And Kiowa Radio reporter Chris Sullivan has more on that. Hey there, Sully. How you doing? I'm good, Aaron. What's happening? You much of a golfer there? Yeah, I, I love playing. I used to play quite a bit, but then, I don't know, I became a dad. Uh-huh. And then the sticks took a, a backseat to other responsibilities. Okay, yes. Okay, so golf has been allowed now for eh, almost two weeks yeah, now. Yeah, about, about two weeks. Yeah, you went out the first day that uh, people were allowed to hit the links. What did it look like out Well, there? it was quiet. But busy. I mean, the parking lots were not full, but probably two thirds. And it was interesting to see just twosomes going off uh, at Mm -hmm. the first tee that I, you know, the first tees that I visited. The putting greens were pretty quiet. Only a couple of people out there. They were staying really far apart from everybody. And, uh, you know, there are no more holes to put into at the putting greens. They're trying to cut down on contact places. Right. You know, you don't need to work at worry about that. And it was, you know, it's just kind of interesting. You know, people were really just excited to get out there and, and hit the ball. It was a beautiful day that Tuesday when it reopened and people just had a great time. They got around. They thought the social distancing rules were good. Some of them even helped their golf game, helped their golf score because there are no rakes right. in the bunkers. Uh, and so some courses are treating that as ground under your repair. You can just take your ball out of the bunker and drop yeah. it with a free drop. Uh, and there's no more holes uh, to put into on the on the course. The the, the cup is raised, and so mm-hmm. all you have to do is just graze the cup. Just a little and, ping. Yeah, and, and so it good. counts. Yeah. So I could roll something way back there. No lip outs, no more things like that. So yeah, counted as good. Bing! Yeah, my handicap will just uh, drop like, uh, like crazy. Okay, so what are, what are the actual rules in terms of how many people can be out there at once. It's only twosomes. Yeah, for the they're most taking part, right? twosomes yeah. right now. Uh, you can only have one person in the golf cart, uh-huh. unless, of course, you have a family member riding with you or, or a youth riding with you, a youth family member. You can play in foursomes if you'd like if they are all your immediate family, so are all your family. So uh, if the Granillos got together and decided to, to play, so you could play as a foursome. But right now, primarily twosomes. And, you know, some places are booking singles to come on so they can match a single with a single. Uh, there were some people wearing masks and things mm-hmm. like that. Some courses are different in that uh, you can go into the pro shop and buy a sleeve of balls or a glove or some tees if you need them. Other places, the pro shop is closed, but you could order some things from them and they'll lay them out for you and you could pay all on credit card. There's no The retail shops primarily are closed, as are the dining facilities. Though some places might have a beverage cart, you can probably get a dog to 
to go at the turn, but there's you can't go in and physically sit down, grab a beer, or sit down and grab a mm-hmm. dog at the turn. So it, it, different, but I think people are just happy to get out there and play. Was anybody telling you that uh, the whole idea of not allowing golf in the first place was just obscene? That All it, of them. Really? Yeah, well, because yeah. they're like, we so this socially distant almost by design. I mean, the the holes are spread apart. About the only time groups really congregate are on par threes, where you have several par threes in a row, perhaps, and people are taking their shots. Maybe they hit something out of bounds, whatever. They're, mm-hmm. they're taking their time, and you can congregate there. It happens the same on some p- longer par fives where people think they can hit the ball farther than they do, and so <laughs> they wait to tee off, things like that. So, that, though, yeah, they're like, well, why? I mean, we're outside. We're not near each other. They they kind of didn't understand why Washington was the only one of the only states that had a prohibition on golfing, mm-hmm. but I think at the end of the day they were all just happy to be playing, uh, regardless of what they shot or regardless of the politics involved or, or the reasons they just wanted to play and and I mean the response was great as soon as the governor lifted the order I talked to one group which manages the eleven public courses around here including Seattle's four and they're like yeah we filled up our t-sheet for the whole week in like a day uh with so the response was great and i think people have been doing a relatively good job of staying socially distant and following the rules because they know if they mess up (laughs) it could very easily be shut down again so they don't want that to happen yeah let's shift now to college football something that is near and dear to your heart especially now that you have uh a son who's going to be hopefully playing playing football. Well, he's supposed to be playing college yeah. football in the fall, yeah. uh, but there may not be a season to be had. What, what is the latest there? What is Montana State telling you? Well, Montana State, uh, Montana, it's different because the Montana has not quite seen the infections right. and the infection rate that others have there. The governor is loosening has has some loose, loosening some things this week uh, to allow businesses and you know maybe even gyms or things like that open mm-hmm. up. So the question becomes: Will the people that are on their schedule be able to travel or will they be will the the, the teams that they're supposed to play be playing is everybody going to be playing are only some schools going to be playing are they even going to be playing Uh, the big sky Mm -hmm. conference which manages the montana state that's the conference they're in they're like we're leaving it up to our institutions Mm -hmm. to figure it out i think montana state is planning on to having students back in class which most people say you can't really have the football players go and be getting in learning class and because they're football players, there's already enough people there that think football players are treated <laughs> treated specially, uh, and you know they probably wouldn't be wrong in a lot of instances. But so I think where you see schools allowing people to come back, general students to actually sit in class, you might have more opportunity for schools to uh, to play their fall schedules. But I think right now flexibility is the key. I mean, we heard this week you know, some California schools right. have already decided, and I can't believe that. I mean, it's I mean the middle of May, and we're talking about games in September. Granted, there are a lot of logistics that go into that to, to schedule things and whatnot, but it seemed awfully early for some of those schools. You know, Fresno State, San Jose State, those guys are San Diego State are, you know, part of the, the are the FBS schools involved. You know, Cal Poly, Chico State, uh, Sacramento State, some teams uh, are involved in that. We don't know what that means. So it's it, we really don't know. It's, it's kind of waiting on pins and needles to find out whether or not Tommy will be going one to school in Montana yeah. in the in the next couple of months, and then it, will he be playing football after that? We we just don't know. So there's a lot of unknown, and I think people are waiting until the very end to try to make a decision based on whatever the current information is about the infection rates around the country at the very last minute before they decide yeah. to jump into it. Because I don't think anybody expects 
40, 50,000 people to be sitting exactly. next to each other no matter what happens with the infection rates. I mean, maybe these will be games played without fans. Maybe these will be games played with just family there. I, we don't know, which is kind of frustrating. I mean, for Tommy, I mean, he's a class of 2020. This is the time the, the high yeah. school kids are they're all looking forward. Oh, I'm going to college. I'm going to do this. I can't wait. And they're stuck in neutral, and they really don't have an answer as to what's going to happen, which is very frustrating for, for the kids. Frustrating for parents as well, certainly. So, And the 2020s aren't the only ones. I mean, 2021s, what's recruiting look like? Heck, 2021 kids who have no ambition to play sports. What are their ACT, SATs, all that stuff? What does that mean for going into their senior years? The unknowing, I think, of this whole thing, it just puts everything in flux, which is not a, which adds to the anxiety, I think, yeah. that a lot of us are feeling about a variety of different things. Yeah. Cairo Radio's Chris Sullivan. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Anytime, Aaron. So how does one produce a sports show when there are no live sports going on? Our partners over at 7 Cent ESPN Seattle have been dealing with this dilemma for about two months now. Uh, here to talk about that is Jessamine McIntyre. She is uh, the producer for our morning show over on ESPN Seattle, Danny and Galante. Hey, Jessamine. Hey, Aaron. What's going on? How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, can you take us back to those early days? What were the conversations like uh, you were having uh, with your with your show hosts? Well, when it first started, it felt almost crass to be talking about sports at a time where the entire world was reeling and you know, for us, it was, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. the NBA just suspended right. its season. And in our, you know, vernacular, that meant, oh, oh, my gosh, this is really serious. But measuring what we should talk about and uh, how much we should be talking about the disease itself and giving updates was something that we regularly spoke about off the air and we're so lucky to have Kyra as a partner because we can direct people to go to you guys if they wanted just a full coverage but we did talk quite a bit about it for the first couple days and then once we kind of got our bearings and realized that this is something that's going to be a new normal for a while we gravitated back into the sports world. One of my first jobs in radio was actually a, a sports talk show producer uh, and, and, you know, I mean, so much of the content is what happened the night before for, you know, whether it be baseball, football, basketball, whatever it is. How difficult has it been coming up with new segments, new topics to talk about daily when you don't just have a game to recap or players to analyze? It isn't the easiest thing in the world. I can absolutely tell you that for a fact. It is. Um, it. We get very creative. We do a lot of 30,000-foot view of, of things. We go back in history, you know, on this day, back when um, we also had the draft to look forward to, and then we had the draft to recap, which was about a month's worth of content. <laughs> yeah, you stretched that. Oh, no, I <laughs> oh, yeah, every little last drop. <laughs> um, and then just talking about what sports mean to us, um, inviting listeners to, uh, you know, weigh in on that kind of thing, too. But there's a lot of creativity involved right now, that's for sure. Okay, can you talk about, like, one of the more creative ideas that you've had and executed well during this? Um, I always have my hosts give me a wish list of anyone they could talk to. Uh-huh. You know, th- this is my list, you know, top three, top five guys in the world. And Danny has been obsessed with Jalen Rose uh-huh. forever. 
And he told me a long time ago that if I could ever get him, just don't even tell me. Just put him on the air. <laughs> so not only did I get Jalen Rose, which is a pretty hard get, especially with the Lance Dance, you know, airing on yeah. ESPN right now. Um, I got him and then I had to keep it a secret from Danny because I wanted to actually surprise him and we're all on remote and I've got, you know, my board operator, Lydia Cruz back in the studio and we can all hear each other in queue during the breaks. And I was like, when the phone rings, just like put programming in Danny's ears so he can't hear you talking on the phone. Then Paul, you're going to lead this segment, just steal it from Danny and you bring him on. And anyway, he called in, but it was 15 minutes late. So I had Paul leading this random segment, just filibustering. And he did a really good job. And we had a really fun segment and everything. And then we were supposed to have Brock Hewitt on at 8 o'clock, which we do every single Tuesday. And all of a sudden, I hear the phone ring. And Lydia does a masterful job of putting programming in Danny's ear. So he can't hear her talking on the phone. I yell down the line to Paul, hey, Paul. You know, we're just going to go with it. We're going to do it anyway. I call Brock. I say, hey, can we push you to 830? I'm really sorry. Yeah, he's cool with it. All right. And it went off at that point without a hitch. And he gave one of the best interviews we've ever had on the show. (laughs) So that was one that was not only just like personally fun, but it ended up um, it was definitely me stretching my creative muscles as well. Nice. When we, you know, look look back on this time, Jessamyn. (laughs) you know, these past few months, what's going to be sort of the the big learning lessons for for you, uh, not only as a a producer, but I mean, kind of what what the sports world has learned as well? Um, I guess for me, um, I've learned that the value as a producer, the value of our personalities on the air, that we're not just here to talk about what happened. We're here to communicate with our listeners, because I don't think that if we didn't have that connection, I don't think we would still have a place on the air right now in people's lives. And you look across the landscape of sports talk radio in general and how many people have been put out of work. And that's not just in sports talk. It's in sports media. I've watched several people get laid off and furloughed and have their work reduced. So it makes me grateful for um, our company and the way that we've gone about building our brand um, and eternally grateful to our listeners, but I think that it will absolutely in hindsight be a, where were you when moment in watching everything just shut down and we lost a lot. And I mean, this is a, you know, pales in comparison to everything else that everyone is going to. I'm just speaking from my my own experience, but um, I, I truly do think that sports brings people together and losing it, um, you know, there's, there's a lot lost in our communities. Yeah, definitely. I was, I was talking to our producer, Laura earlier. I mean, when it got really, when it got real for a lot of people was the day the NBA canceled its season. And I remember that day specifically because it was also the night that I found out Tom Hanks has coronavirus. So it was like this, right. uh, it was just this incredible moment where it all came to a head and it was like, whoa, Tom Hanks has the virus and there's no basketball left. And and again, the it was it was the the sports world when it came to a halt. That's when a lot of people really started to pay attention. I think I do too. And I thought I was in my bubble when that made it real for me. But I think it made it real for everyone when that happened. And I mean, you remember um, who was it? Rudy um, 
Gobert, yeah. who, you know, made that unbelievably dumb decision to touch all the mics because yes. he was treating this whole thing like a joke, like it was quote unquote the flu, which also isn't a joke. Um, and then it turned out that he tested positive and so did one of his teammates. And everyone took it a lot more seriously then just because, wait, this guy was joking about it. And then, you know, minutes later, we find out Adam Silver has canceled everything. Um, and then slowly but surely, all of the conference tournaments shut down. Right. No um, March when it came Madness. to college. That's right. basketball. Yes. That yeah. Was, that's when it was like, oh, my gosh, this is this is serious now. And I mean, the Big East was on the floor playing and they came out at halftime and were like, shut it down wow. in the middle of a game. And it was crazy. We were just watching, um, you know, as soon as I believe it was Kansas and Duke were the first two to pull out and say, nope, not putting our student athletes at mm-hmm. risk. And then we were anticipating a March Madness without fans at first. Mm-hmm. And then once the bigger schools, the higher ranked schools pulled out, we're like, well, you know, this is not going to happen. And then the conference tournaments kept going on and one by one, they all just shut down. It's like being in a baseball stadium and the lights slowly shut out one by one. You know, you hear that click sound as they shut off around the field. That's what it felt like to me. So that is definitely exactly when it became so real to me. I know exactly where I was sitting on my couch. I was doing show prep, just watching an NBA game on ESPN and all of a sudden get all these alerts. Wait, what? That is Jessamine McIntyre. She is a morning show producer at our sister station, 710 ESPN Seattle. Thanks, Jessamine. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for having me. Appreciate you. Major League Baseball could be back this summer, but it's going to look a lot different. A shorter season, no fans in the stands, and expanded playoffs, perhaps? Shannon Dreyer covers the Mariners for our sister station, 710 ESPN Seattle. Are you incredibly bored without baseball right now? What are you doing to keep busy? Well, I'm bored without games. Uh, To keep busy, actually, the Mariners have been very, very accommodating, both the organization and the players, in, uh, you know, giving time to all reporters. So there have been a ton of stories. It's almost like an off-season or an extended spring training as far as interviews go and the opportunity to do videos with players and get-to-knows and whatnot. And I think they are as bored as everybody else (laughs) is. So in in truth, we're getting interviews that we normally wouldn't get. What are they talking about in terms of trying to get the season going here? The players finally have something in front of them. When we would talk to them, they knew nothing over the last couple of months. They were hearing everything that we were hearing, and now the concrete plan looks like uh, they're aiming for an early July start date, which I think July 4th is the date that they ideally would like, which would require at least three weeks of spring training that would start sometime in June, and the major issues are going to be how to keep everybody healthy. And then the other thing that you hear quite a bit about is compensation for the players. And uh, MLB wants to do a revenue sharing type deal, which Major League Baseball is the only sport that doesn't have a major sport that doesn't have revenue sharing with the players. Players don't want that. They want what they agreed to, which was their prorated salaries. So that's going to be a sticking point there as well. 
Um, it's from what I understand, the document that MLB has presented to the players is 80 pages long. So there's going to be a lot to go through on that, uh, everything from the health and the safety to the players to actual rules on the field. Let's talk about that uh, sharing game revenues. What I've read is that the owners and the players would potentially be sharing revenues 50-50 right down the middle. Why is that such a big sticking point for the players? Because they already have contracts. And for a lot of players, uh, that might be less than what they've agreed to. And I know that people, nobody wants to hear about millionaires arguing with billionaires over dollars in this time right now. But I think one of the things on the player's side that gets lost is they've already taken a 50% pay cut. They, they, they're not getting paid for the games that have been missed so far. If it's an 82-game season, they're they're already losing half of their salary. So uh, they also don't like um, they also don't like the revenue sharing for the precedent that it sets. The you know Major League Baseball has been very steadfast that they will never have a not Major League Baseball but the players they will not have a salary cap, and they see that as capping their salary. And lastly, another tack that they're taking right now, and I think this is something that as they get closer to uh, this actually becoming a reality, it's not something that we heard about early. It's not something we even heard about in the middle of this, but they're also seeing themselves now as uh, putting themselves at risk, uh, regardless of what safety precautions are taken to play the game. So uh, in that regard, they want everything that is coming to them as they see themselves going out there and uh, playing under extraordinary conditions. Has there been any talk about them wearing masks or anything like that? Uh, the players wouldn't. And what they're doing is they're watching the KBO, the Korean baseball organization, very closely, and Taiwan as well. Taiwan was the first to get going uh, KBO uh came shortly after that. Both leagues are up and running right now with no fans, although I read that Taiwan is ready to start admitting 2,000 fans per game. They're going to let families sit together. They're going to have box meals uh, that are provided and try and get some sort of atmosphere there. Of course, those two countries doing much better. They're down to single and double-digit numbers testing positive daily, so they can do that. And in both of those, the players aren't wearing masks, but the umpires, uh, the field staff, anybody in the dugout, the coaches are all wearing both masks and gloves. So Major League Baseball playoffs usually happen in October, uh, and that's that's when people are concerned about a potential second wave of coronavirus cases. You know, Are there any contingency plans in, in, in case there is uh, another spike later on down the, down the season? If it happens, you know, they're going to have to react. Accordingly, one of the biggest questions on players' minds, and we're learning a little bit more about that, was what would happen if even a single player tested positive? And uh, from my understanding, MLB doesn't want to shut things down if one player tests positive. It's that at that point they would watch everybody around them, monitor more closely, test more rigorously around that player and go from there. So uh, in their minds, they in the plan that they are setting out right now, they believe they can get through October, but uh, need to stop before November. What about reporters, people in the media like you? I mean, are there plans for, for you all to cover the teams? That we have not heard yet. And that's kind of been one of my questions from the beginning. It was really interesting in spring training about ooh, probably seven, eight, nine days before it all shut down they came down with a ruling that we no longer could be in the clubhouse. And that was the first uh, kind of inkling of social distancing that we got. And then if we were to interview players, we had to be six feet away from them. 
And at that point, it, it kind of sounded silly to us because we'd been in that clubhouse all year long uh, and forever, but all spring long. And, you know, how what's to say that we were any more dangerous than anybody else who had been in the clubhouse. And now you see where we're at. And that was the beginning of that social distancing. Uh, we, we saw at the MFA fight, they kept the media on a separate level. Of course, they were all uh, screened when they came into the building. They set up media stations uh, rather than a press box every but he had their own table. They had their own microphone. That was one event. So my question, I don't know how they're going to handle it, if media is going to be allowed on site or if they will have to uh, cover it remotely. It's something that certainly can be done. I think that's something that we're learning as this goes on. There's so much that we can do online. Uh, I have no idea how that's going to go. Broadcasters will fall into that category, too. Is that something that uh, will they be necessary staff in a ballpark or will they be calling games from uh, a distance? I know that they're going to try and keep the numbers minimal. So we're just going to have to wait and see what happens there. The people who don't like baseball that I know say that it, the season's just too long. You know, 162 games is too much to to follow. This feels like a great opportunity then for baseball to really capitalize on this and, you know, show what it can be. I mean, an 82-game season, that could be really exciting. Yeah, I think they, you know, baseball, I think they look back to what they did in uh, after 9-11. And baseball was the sport that really got a lot of people. They were the first to come back and... Uh, I think a lot of people commented afterwards that it was the first feeling of normal they had after that horrific event right there. And I think baseball prides itself in uh, being that distraction and being there for the country in in times uh, of tough situations. So I think that they look at that and they also look at, you know, let's face it, this is a a sport that has been struggling in recent years to pull in younger fans. And uh, if they are able to come back and if they are the only show in town, uh, that gives them an incredible advantage over gaining an audience. And also, uh, you know, it's the perfect sport for that and that it's played every day and you can follow along. There's appointment listening, appointment viewing, and, you know, even reading the next day. It can take up so much time. I think uh, it would be an opportunity for a different generation to really fall in love with the game again. And that, without question, is on their mind. Now, with all of that also comes, if they don't get this right, it's going to be a horrible black eye on the sport as well. Be it um, if they start up and they don't, they're not able to keep people safe. And, and if uh, you know there are numerous tests positive, if it's not beneficial or if it's harmful to the communities that it's in, that will be terrible. And if they can't come up with an agreement, that will be terrible as well. So there is a huge spotlight on the game right now. And for the game's sake, both sides, they need to get this right. Most importantly, Shannon, how can the Mariners capitalize on an 82-game season? Does this benefit them or hurt them even further? (laughs) (laughs) You're you're looking for a postseason, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah. What, 20 years almost now? (laughs) It's been a little while. Uh, You know, I think different teams are set up to um, handle this both in the short term and the long term uh, differently. And I think that basically in an 81-game season or an 82-game season, I think absolutely anything can happen. One of my rules of thumb has always been throw the first month out. You you can think of every season where you have these teams just out of the gates, maybe in the Mariners last year were one of them. 
maybe even for a full month, they're just outperforming what they're going to be able to do over the length of season. But if that season is cut in half, all of a sudden, that means so much more. And with an expanded playoff, that's going to give you that opportunity to get into the postseason. So on that level, I think everybody is pretty much in the same boat. I think teams that rely more on their pitching are going to be hurting a little bit because it's going to take a little while for that pitching to come along. And then I think in the long term, I think the Mariners will actually fare better than most as far as uh, spending goes. The Mariners, as you know, are in a rebuild right now, and they drastically cut down their roster, and they're going with young players. And after this year, they've got barely you know anything on the books as far as player salaries go. So if you're one of those teams that's really stocked up on the big superstars, over the last few years, you're going to be paying money that you're getting nothing back for. The Mariners will not be in that situation. So that's one positive for them in the long term. While most sports have pressed the pause button, one non-traditional sports has seen its viewership increase dramatically during the pandemic. So how are these athletes continuing to play these days? Well, they all compete from the comfort of their own homes and in front of a computer. Esports are looking to fill the void left behind by traditional sports. But can they do it? Iowa Radio's Alec Downing spoke to one esport fanatic at the University of Washington. Trevor Whiten advises all of the gaming and esports student organizations at the University of Washington. It's just an exciting time. I think it's great for us to lean into it. But I, I, really, it's a great time to be a gamer. For those unfamiliar, esports are competitive multiplayer video games played by professional gamers. Just like traditional sports, there are leagues, teams, athletes, coaches, sponsorships, drug testing, rabid fans, and commentators. Oh, Generally, oh, here we go. Trump's trouble. coming in. This will be first blood right now. You've got to call on two, though. Needs a couple more spins. The fidget will go. The spins keep going. Bike it. Dumps on one. Dumps on two. People pack arenas to watch esports games live with multi million dollar cash prizes on the line. Esports are thriving during the pandemic as people search for new forms of entertainment to fill their time. The Washington Post reports Twitch is the most popular streaming platform for video games. It saw nearly one and a half billion hours streamed last month a 50% increase from March. If you look at all the streaming platforms are, are, are posting major increases this quarter in, in viewership. So people are already heading to online to watch people play and people compete and whatnot. So I think it's, I think there really definitely is room there for them to expand upon this. Whiten says this increase in viewership is great overall for the sport. But even before the pandemic, esports have been in a strange place as they try to translate the digital experience into a real-world one for fans. You know, a lot of the colleges and uh, that, I've, that we talk to and work with are looking at building arenas. There was a conversation about live space. How do we how do we turn this into a traditional sport? And that's been sort of reversed right now. So it's, they're actually going back to playing their strengths. There, there's definitely potential there to play to, to play the esports strengths in the short term and be a stopgap and to to maximize on the fact that. People need online entertainment and they want to compete. UW opened its very own esports arena and gaming lounge just last year. But for now, the esports athletes are operating remotely because UW's campus is shut down meaning all events are postponed or canceled. As far as the UW community gamers, I mean, they're all, they've always been engaged online. I mean, their activity hasn't really changed. The only thing that has changed is kind of the face-to-face engagement. They for sure have not lost momentum, and in some ways it's made them more focused. 
He says after the initial shock of the shutdown, the UW gamers went into planning mode. The university's gaming association came up with the idea for a fully online spring showdown. The post-COVID, what's what's next for us? Chapter developed into this cohesive. Let's do a spring showdown. It's an intercollegiate invitational tournament, and it's sort of it, it actually brought together everything from League of Legends and Valorant and Overwatch to Tetris, Street Fighter, Tekken, Super Smash. Esports athletes from other Western universities are all competing in the tournament. It's running right now and lasts through May 30th. But Whiten says you don't have to be a pro-level player to benefit from engaging with esports and gaming. It's a perfect medium for keeping people busy, and it's like it's almost a, this interesting reversal of we're fighting our kids to go outside and go hang out with their friends, get off the Fortnite, and now we're like play some Fortnite with your friends. There's a, it's a weird paradoxical shift here, but I think it's uniquely positioned to take advantage of alone time together, basically. Because I mean, even in my experience, you know, if I'm on Xbox Live. I'm talking to people in Toronto and on the East Coast, and you get a weird insight if you can dodge some of the you know, the bro gamers on there. You, you get a weird insight into what's happening in other, other parts of the country. And, I mean, and so it's like you feel together. I mean, you're hearing someone's voice on your headset and interacting with them to shoot pixels on a map is a, is a weird it's, – it's that surrogate way of, of keeping, keeping connected. He also says the easiest way to become an esports fan is just to start watching. Jump onto a streaming platform, pick a game or entry point, and start from there. And then, uh, and basically, a world will open up for you. It's a spider web of inter- interconnectivity. You can watch UW's esports athletes compete on their Twitch page. You can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. You've been listening to COVID-19 Seattle. We put out longer episodes like this one every Saturday with in-depth coverage of coronavirus stories in our community. Tune in here throughout the week for daily news recaps with myself and Dave Ross. And a huge thank you to all of our guests this week. First, Michelle Nublom at Seattle University. You can find her reflection about the sudden end of her track season in the show notes for this episode. Jessamine McIntyre from our partner station, 710 ESPN Seattle. She produces Danny and Gallant weekday mornings over there. And thank you to Shannon Dreyer, our Mariners reporter for 710 ESPN. And of course, thank you to Chris Sullivan. You can hear him weekday mornings on 97.3 FM. This episode was produced and reported by myself, Laura Scott, and Alec Downing. I'm Aaron Granillo, and this is COVID-19 Seattle. Thanks for listening. Yeah.